Good morning. It's good to see all of you out this morning. I'm glad that you're here with us. I wanted to spend a moment to kind of tell you a little bit about what we're doing on Sunday night and uh, talk to Kirk about using our education funds to buy books for each family. We have enough for each family that at least comes on Sunday night. What it is is it's called One Word. And it's something that was published, I believe, last year uh, with the idea in mind it has 53 lessons in it, one for each week of the year, uh, giving one extra for the occasional extra week that you have. Um, but anyway, the idea is to go through the book in a year and just talk about one word a week. Um, it's a devotional book, and so each word has five different days in it, five different devotionals. And so you go through the devotionals, just read one a day. It has a scripture reading that goes along with it. And also at the end of it, it has a challenge for each day, something that you can implement with each lesson that you go through. And the sermon is kind of indirectly based on the book. Uh, there's the freedom for the preacher to preach on the Word and still work up his own sermon. Uh, there's material that goes along with the book that can be added to it as well. And so that's the idea of it. And that's what we're going to use on Sunday nights. This is going to last us longer than a year. Because on Sunday night we have our song and scripture service. So you're going to have a week's break in between uh, each month. So if you miss out on a few of them, you can use that week to catch up or do whatever kind of study that you want to do. The idea of it is something that I've been trying to encourage since I've been here. And I want to encourage all of us as members of, of the congregation to study and to do something together. And I think this is a good way for us to study together and uh, do something each day that involves the Bible. And so that's the idea behind it. Um, but yeah, if you plan on being here on Sunday nights, if you'd like a book, uh, Kirk already said that if we need some more, we'll get them. But um, anyway, if you would like a book, you know, see me and Marissa, and we'll be glad to, to give one of those to you. Uh, Sunday mornings, we're going to continue what we've been doing, and, and we'll have sort of a monthly theme. Uh, the theme for this month is actually going to be continued into next month. And we're going to be studying the theme of lessons learned from marriages of the Bible. Now, this is not a series that is based specifically on marriage, but there are a lot of good lessons that we can learn as far as our marriages are concerned. But there are also lessons for those of you who aren't married. And so um, different things that we can learn from those marriages. And we're going to begin, I believe, appropriately the story of Adam and Eve. This is subtitled, The Honeymoon is Over. And as we look at Adam and Eve, I think we, we kind of see that within their marriage. Uh, but there are a lot of good lessons that we can learn from the marriage that we read about between Adam and and Eve, the first marriage that ever was created. Now, if there ever was a perfect marriage, you know, we have to think whenever we're looking to find someone to marry, we have this idea that we want to make it the perfect marriage. And maybe we're a little disappointed when we find out that things aren't always perfect in marriage. But if there ever was a perfect marriage or a match made in heaven, if you will, 
It was certainly the case with Adam and Eve. They had it perfect, didn't they? Adam was, in every way possible, made out to be the perfect man in mind and body. Eve was created specifically for him. Just for Adam. Just because he would be lonely. Just because God saw that he needed somebody, Eve was created for him. And God himself joined these two together in holy matrimony. It was the perfect marriage. As it is the case in many relationships, it began well. But the best days of their marriage didn't last. And we see that, that things were, were going to change very drastically from their beginning. They were eventually banished from paradise itself. Things would never again be as good as they were in the garden. They would be forced to face reality in the real world. And all of the things to be suffered in this marriage, God would bring with them a ray of hope. So we find that, that even though it wasn't perfect from beginning to end, that there was a ray of hope for them to look at, even in their banishment. Well, let's go to the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning, man was created on the sixth and final day of creation. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And God blessed them. I've already read that part. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Man was the greatest of the creatures that God had created. And he was given dominion, authority, and control over them. Despite this dominion and his dwelling in the paradise garden, God saw that man was lonely. And in Genesis 2 verse 
18, reading through verse 23, we read about the creation of woman. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. <clears throat> and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. As man was given authority over all creatures, so he was given authority over his wife. She was to be his helper. He named her woman. And she was formed from a rib of his own body. This was not something to be looked down upon. This was not something that was in any way bad. This is the way that God created marriage. He created marriage with man's authority over his wife. And does that mean that he has sole authority? That he should make any decision? Or that he should make decisions without her? And certainly that's not the case. Man should look up to his wife. He should respect her. And she should respect his leadership. Purpose was given for future generations in the first marriage. Notice what is said in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. One flesh is something that seems to be outdated. We see people that are striving to have their own ideas of marriage and, and present them in that way. And, and each person is an individual and they need to have their freedoms. That's not exactly what God had in mind when He created marriage. One flesh is not an ancient, outdated idea as marriages today even are formed with the same purpose in mind. When we were married, Marissa and myself, that was the idea behind it, that we would become one. And I believe that we have. That doesn't mean that, that we always agree with each other. But it does mean that we act together as one. Though the two may be individuals, they plan things. that They plan with each other in mind. Many problems occur when couples agree to individual bank accounts and things of that nature. They're not acting together as one. That's not what God had in mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. The marriage between Adam and Eve, we see, was perfect from the beginning. 
Notice what it said in Genesis 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There was no reason for shame. They were given no reason to even blush. As was basically only the two of them before God. There was no reason for shame. They had per the perfect lines of communication. They could speak freely one to another. They had the perfect setting for a successful marriage. It was God-blessed. However, as we look at Adam and Eve, and as we look at, at their marriage, we see that they were not without rules. Yes, they were the only couple. They were the only man and wife. But they were given something to follow. The same rules that were given to Adam also applied to Eve. Notice what is said in Genesis 2 and verses 15 through 17. Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Though the rule sounds simple, it seems that it was one rule too many for them to follow. When faced with temptation, both gave in to their feelings and desires. And just like that, the honeymoon was over. They had it perfect, but because they gave in to their own desires, we see that it was ended very quickly, at least in perfection. Now we find the origin of temptation in them. Among the creatures of the garden, there was one in particular that we read about, a serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, it says this, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here we find evidence that, that tells us that Eve was given the same command that Adam was. She knew the command of God. She knew not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she specifically stated that. That's exactly what she told the serpent. Have you ever thought that this tree was symbolic of something? That there was something more to this tree than what we may initially realize? You see, this tree was symbolic 
of Adam and Eve's submission to God. As long as they did not eat of that tree, they were in submission to God. They were in obedience to His will and to His authority. And that tree was symbolic of it. When they betrayed that trust, when they partook of what they shouldn't have partaken of, that was when it became something that was not good for them. And when they saw it, without eating of its fruit, each time that they saw that tree, they could see that symbolism of submission. They would be reminded of the importance of obedience to God. The serpent, he took something that was good. God had already said that, that everything that he had created was good, including this tree. It was good for something, but it was turned into something that became evil to them. The serpent used the tree as bait to lure Adam and Eve away from God. Isn't that how Satan works? He can take something very good and use it to lure us away from God. Think of, of things that we have in our world. Different ways that we have to spread the gospel. We have television, radio, internet. And all those things can be very good things. We have money. That can be a good thing. It can be used to provide for our families and things of that nature. Those are very good things. But all of those can be a source. Something used by Satan to lead us astray. Money is said to be the root. Or the love of money is said to be the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of it. And similarly, if we look at the love for anything else that we have, Satan can use something very good to lead us astray. And that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. Satan began by questioning the Word of God. Go back to verse 1. We read that, that he was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, as God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He began by a question. He questioned God's word, God's will. And secondly, we see that he denied the word of God. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God had already said, you will surely die. He denied that. He added a three-letter word that changed the meaning entirely. You shall not surely die. Denial of God's word. And thirdly, we find that he ridiculed God and distorted his command. In verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
That, that seemed all well and good. But the fact is that they had already been made like God. Go back to the creation of man. Let us make man in our image. They had already been created like God. And in their disobedience, Adam and Eve, they, they learned much about evil. No doubt about that. But their likeness to God was marred from its original state of creation. It was changed into something that God didn't intend it to be. He didn't create it to be the way that it was in the end. We see here, as we read in chapter 3, that Eve was tempted first. Verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Remember that they were naked from the beginning. But there was no shame. There was no reason for shame. There was no reason for, for them to, to blush. There was nothing bad about that. God had created it in its perfect form. But now they knew that they were naked. And so they tried to cover themselves. It says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Eve was tempted in every form that we are today. Nothing has changed as far as temptation is concerned. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust of the flesh. She saw the tree was good for food. Lust of the eyes. The tree was pleasant to the eyes. And pride of life. The tree was desirable to make one wise. Jesus was also tempted in the same forms as we read in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4. But in Eve's case, the difference between her temptation and Jesus' temptation, we're reminded first of all that temptation in and of itself is not wrong. Temptation is not wrong. Jesus was tempted. What's wrong is when we give in to that temptation. And in Eve's case, she was led astray because she flirted with the temptation instead of resisting it as Jesus did. Eve flirted with the desire to have what she thought she was not allowed. This knowledge was something that God kept back from them for very good reason. It wasn't something that was necessary for their survival or anything like that. But when she saw it, 
She desired it. She wanted what she could not have. She was deceived. And not only did she allow herself to be tempted, but it says that she also gave to her husband with her. <clears throat> it's entirely possible that Adam was nearby and watching all of this as it, it unfolded. And that he allowed her to sin. It says that he was with her. Uh, was that the meaning of it? I don't know. But it's possible. <clears throat> well, we see here that Adam also ate the tree for taking in Eve's transgression. And in shame, they tried to hide from God. Notice what is said in verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Now again, they were naked in the beginning. God knew that. So... Why was that a problem now and not a problem then? They tried to hide themselves in their sin. But we realize here that no one can hide from God. No one can hide from God. Think of what Jonah did. He was commanded to go to Nineveh. And what did he do? Instead of going to Nineveh, he turned a different way and... God found him. He tried to flee the presence of God, but he couldn't. He couldn't run away from God. And neither could Adam and Eve. They couldn't run away from God. They couldn't hide themselves. Their nakedness alone is symbolic of something. Their nakedness is symbolic of their state after sin. You see, sin... When we give in to it, it leaves us exposed in various ways. And because of their sin, they were faced with the consequences of their actions. Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And in verse 17, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Woman would suffer the pain of childbirth, and her husband was to rule over her. Man would work the land all of his days until he was returned to the ground from which he came. Mankind still suffers the consequences of their actions. 
We're always faced with consequences whenever we transgress God's will. But there's also something here that if we're not careful, we'll miss. That even though Adam and Eve sinned against God, even though they transgressed His command, God still loved them. And God loves us today in the same way that He loved them. Notice what is said in verse 21 of chapter 3. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. When they could not clothe themselves properly, God took the responsibility and provided what they could not provide for themselves. They had sewed fig leaves, but it wasn't an adequate covering. It didn't cover their nakedness, which is a good lesson on modesty. But when they couldn't cover themselves, God saw them. He loved them. He had compassion on them. And He made coverings that were adequate. Remember that I said that their nakedness was symbolic of their state after sin. And similarly, when we are unable to cover the sin in our lives, and we are not, when we sin, we cannot cover that sin. We cannot get rid of it. It's there. But when we were unable to cover the sin in our lives, God provided His own Son's blood to do the job. He provided the blood of Christ to cover our sins. He clothed us when we could not clothe ourselves. And when we look at the sin that is in our lives, we understand that God still loves us despite our own transgression of His divine will. You see, God doesn't cease to to love His creation just because we've turned away from Him. He still desires that we repent of what we've done, that we turn back to Him. And certainly we see His love for us in the sending of His Son. I mentioned in our introduction that there is a glimmer of hope that was left for mankind in the consequences given to Satan. Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 So the Lord God said to the serpent because you have done this you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you 
shall bruise his heel. You see, redemption was to come with the sending of God's Son to die for our sins. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Salvation is found in God's love given to us even though we don't deserve it. We don't merit God's favor in any way. We don't earn it. Kurt made mention of that in the, the Bible class lesson. We are asked to, to do God's will. Those are works of obedience. But we do not merit God's love for us. But He still loves us despite our sin. We are saved because of God's grace and mercy upon man. We see some lessons here in Adam and Eve and I think the majority of them are, are for us as individuals. When we're faced with temptation, don't give in to it. Don't give way to, to feelings of desire or lust. Always look to God. And when we do sin, when we do fall away from God, we need to come back. We need to repent. We need to turn away from the evil in our lives and, and turn to Him and Him alone. I don't know where you stand this morning. I don't know if you're a faithful child of God or not. I don't know if you're a Christian or if you've ever obeyed the gospel. But if you need to come, we always offer the Lord's invitation. And it may be that someone here is in need of responding today. But if you need to, to come back and rededicate your life to God, ask for prayer on your behalf, or for forgiveness for something you've done. If you need to obey the gospel, being baptized for the mission of your sin, don't let another day pass by outside of Christ. We ask that if we can help you in any way, that you allow us to do that. As together we stand and as we sing.